0: is Bloomberg
1: Surveillance. Innovation is something which by its nature cannot be forecast. If you could forecast it, it wouldn't be innovation.
2: We think that people have leapfrogged what
3: is reasonable into excessive worry.
1: We took some major fiscal steps to expand the economy in 2009. We followed up with several more, but those ended prematurely.
0: Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio
2: Good morning, I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keane. It is 7 a.m. on Wall Street, 7 p.m. in Tokyo, where the Bank of Japan is in the middle of a two-day meeting. Imagine most of the world's central banks meeting at the same time. What would you call it? You would call that This Week. Monetary policy being made in the U.S., Tom, U.K., Japan, Switzerland, Norway, South Africa, and Russia, along with some other emerging markets.
1: Only you would have that whole list of names.
2: Yeah, and on top of that, political risk. The German elections yesterday, followed by a big day at the polls in the U.S. tomorrow, going to be a very interesting day for investors, interesting week for investors around the world. Ahead of all that, a three-day winning streak for Japanese equities. The Nikkei up one and three-quarters percent. The yen weakens almost to 114, 113.68 at this point. The FTSE ahead of the Bank of England meeting is higher right now by 36 points, six-tenths of a percent. The pound is weaker, 143.55. European equities overall stronger. The stocks 600.00. Is three points higher this morning, eight tenths of a percent. The euro has weakened, one eleven fifteen, though still way stronger than it, uh, w- uh, I'm sorry, uh, way stronger than it was when the ECB met last week. Uh, strong protest vote against Angela Merkel in uh, Germany, but the DAX is up this morning, 155 points, one point six percent. Uh, the U.S., stronger dollar, lower oil. They seem to go together. West Texas down almost 2% this morning, 37.76. Brent, 39.80, percent lower, which has futures down. S&P E-mini futures off four points, about two-tenths of a percent. A tenth drop for Dow futures, 15 points. NASDAQ futures down four points right now, a tenth of eight percent. Interesting that central bank risk is definitely in the markets this week. But as I noted in Germany, political risk is not. And in the U.S., investors don't seem rattled at the moment by Trumpism. Richard Haas is president of the Council on Foreign Relations. We thank him for coming by this morning. Richard, are investors feeling so protected by central bank policy that they don't need to worry at the moment about the political divisions that seem to be arising in
4: countries around the world? I'm not sure people are seeing the connections that you may you know, be assuming here. So you have you know, all the events you talked about from any number of central banks meeting to you know, terrorist attacks in, in the Cote d'Ivoire or in uh, Ankara to the German uh, state elections to the primary elections here. But I don't think people necessarily are drawing direct lines or links between any of those events and their economic situation which they see as something that's apart from that and much more fundamental the
2: question that came to my mind when um, when I was thinking about over the weekend with, with what's going on with uh, Trump and what's going on in Germany and and what's going on in England as they prepare for their meeting with the fiscal policy just off the board when fiscal policy is what people say w- you know the experts say would really help why, how have we gotten to the point where people so
4: thoroughly reject that which would be good for them. Because fiscal policy, as you and people listening to the show know, is about spending and taxing. And it's hard to think about two more politically loaded questions than how to tax and how to spend. Monetary policy has the advantage of being made by a few people who are essentially apart from the political process. That's the strength. Of, that's the strength of it. But you can't take uh, fiscal policy out of the political process. It is the political process, and essentially it's gridlocked in most countries.
2: For years, though, it, it we'll just talk about the U.S. For years, the federal government spent money to stimulate the economy. Uh, Keynesian economics was accepted, uh, and now. Uh, the whole idea of any kind of fiscal activity is anathema.
4: Uh, well, it, it is, and you see it you know, particularly because of some changes in the, in the Republican Party, and I think in this country, I won't speak for others, uh, the inability to agree on fiscal po- policy is increasingly uh, a reflection of the polarization of, uh, of, of our politics, I think you had, you finally had say a, a budget deal this year, but what 's as interesting is what it didn 't get to, uh, among other things it, it didn 't touch entitlements it didn 't touch uh, some important parts of the uh, society and the economy. Infrastructure is still not uh, getting funded anywhere near the way it, uh, it should in this country. I just think these things uh, here are the inability to deal with fiscal policy is is a reflection of our political gridlock and I just don't see at the moment how to how to change that anytime soon.
1: An important conversation this morning with Richard Haas, the council on foreign relations. Of course with all due respect uh with our politics look for that this evening and through the election day tomorrow in Florida, Ohio and other selected uh, states. Bloomberg surveillance this Monday brought to you by Invesco. Invesco believes it's time to say goodbye to the traditional 60/40 stock bond allocation, say hello to alternatives is a core part of modern portfolios. Learn more at Invesco.com slash alts. Invesco, I-N-V-E-S-C-O, Invesco.com slash alts, A-L-T-S. And we thank Invesco for their commitment to our conversation on economics Finance, Investment, and International Relations, which means Richard Haas is a good person uh, to speak to. What's your new book going to be called? I know you've already sold the movie rights. What's the book (laughs) going to be called?
4: I'm not sure who you're playing yet, Tom. It's (laughs) It's called A World in Disarray, and Penguin Press is publishing it later this year.
1: It is America in disarray. No one thought we'd be where we are after the last 10 days we've seen. Define establishment. And it's a hugely misused word. Define establishment and tell me what the to-do list is.
4: One of the reasons the world is in disarray is because the United States is in disarray. And one of the reasons the United States is in disarray is there isn't any establishment anymore. And by that I mean there's, there's no consensus. There's no consensus between the parties. We were just talking about that. There's no consensus within the parties. There's no consensus outside the parties. This is a country which has changed in so many ways demographically. Uh, politically, economically, socially. The consensus was born of a United States that was very much centered in the Northeast. Uh, It was a much smaller country in terms of uh, population, much more controlled by men. It was controlled by a politics that was essentially between the 40-yard lines. Uh, Major media had a a large role. It was before the Internet and so forth. Well, suddenly we're seeing narrow casting rather than broadcasting. We're seeing all sorts of ways of funding our politics that don't require parties. Uh, We're seeing the country has demographically changed in any number of ways. So I actually think uh, it's it's increasingly impossible to speak of an establishment that also has unraveled because of political developments from Vietnam to the, to the 2003 Iraq War on foreign policy. Uh, basic questions about civil liberties versus privacy, look at the debate between FBI and uh, Apple, some of the problems over 2008, and fundamental questions now we're seeing, for example, about trade. You used to have an establishment view that free trade was good for the United States. That is completely out the window, and both Democrats and Republicans are beginning to question and like it. And, Michael,
1: Ambassador House told me uh, an hour ago that TPP really is at risk. I mean, it's just, it's just evaporated after what we've seen over two years.
4: I just don't see it getting passed, uh, not just before the election. It's very hard to see how it gets passed in the lame duck now. And in its present form, I don't think any of the four top people uh, would be committed to passing it. So then you're talking about either renegotiation with the other parties, which is extremely difficult, or some sort of a unilateral deal on the United States between the executive branch and Congress, certain sorts of side agreements and understandings. So either way, the, the path for TPP has become far more tenuous.
2: Let me ask you to expand on what you said about no um, consensus. Uh, we tend, we're, we're in, in the Northeast, we're in New York, we are where um, the media focus is. We watch television constantly, the cable networks in the tank for Donald Trump, and uh, you know all this stuff that's going on. But in the rest of the country, where people aren't as narrowly focused, minute by minute, on all this stuff, is there more of a, uh, a consensus about? What should happen in the country? In other words, is there more of a middle cl- uh, a middle, not class, but middle view of what
4: should happen out there than maybe we give credit? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. In terms of what the policy should be, and there's often disconnects. So you see people, you know, very con- concerned about any changes to entitlements, to Social Security, uh, to Medicaid. You see, uh, on the other hand, they also then will complain, complain about the size of the, the deficit and uh, and the debt. Uh, on issue after issue, I think there's certain intellectual and political disconnects. But no, I don't think if you get outside uh, with the Beltway in Washington or the Northeast Corridor or the Amtrak corridor, I don't think there's a what we call ROTC, rest of the country consensus. I, I don't think uh, I, I don't think it's it's there.
1: Mike mentioned, uh, I believe it was a Michigan uh, election in that Tuesday a week ago. Seems forever ago, after what we witnessed, the massive turnout and the massive belief that this system is not working. The the overwhelming thing is a public that flat out disagrees with the elite optimism we get in this show.
4: Absolutely, and people don't feel the system is working for them. I think they feel it's rigged, and what's interesting is if you take some of the talking points of Donald Trump and some of the talking points of Bernie Sanders, there's a considerable overlap between those talking points and there's considerable uh, common appeal, yeah. but they're both in some ways crossover candidates, and I think what we're beginning to see, Tom, and this is slightly dangerous ground, but I think we're beginning to see greater class appeals in American society. Part of the ethos of the United States because yeah. of upward mobility is we never really thought about class. Wow,
1: we're going to co- come back with Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations, these important conversations before Florida, Ohio, and others vote tomorrow. Futures, negative four. All
2: right, let's check it with Michael Barr and Get the latest world and national
5: headlines. Michael? Mike Tom, thank you very much. Five primaries take place tomorrow and the candidates are trying to push their case. Donald Trump could basically set up an insurmountable lead if he has a big day. His Republican rivals continue their criticism of the violence at some of Trump's rallies, accusing Trump of causing it with his comments. The primaries are in Ohio, Illinois, Missouri, North Carolina, and Florida. Turkey's Air Force is hitting Kurdish rebels in northern Iraq today, hours after a suicide car bombing in Ankara killed 37 people and heightened tensions with the Kurdish rebels. Police plan to resume their search later this morning on the Hudson River for the body of a third crew member who went missing after a tugboat crashed into a barge north of New York City. The accident caused the tugboat to sink. Last night, police divers stopped searching inside the sunken tugboat for 56-year-old Harry Hernandez. Global News 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Mike Lubar. Mike, Tom.
1: Michael, thanks so much. Yen, 113.69, a slightly weaker yen this morning. With Richard Haas, this is Bloomberg Surveillance.
2: Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by your Tri-State BMW centers. Visit them online at tristatebmw.com. At BMW, they make only one thing, the ultimate driving machine.
6: And I'm Karen Moscow. This update is brought to you by Brown University, where the new executive master in cybersecurity prepares leaders in law, technology, and business to face tomorrow's greatest threats. The Brown University executive master in cybersecurity. Strategy is the best security. Apollo Global Management agreeing to buy grocery train Fresh Market for $28.50 a share in cash, or almost $1.4 billion. And fresh market shares are up 22% this morning. Starwood Hotels and Resorts Worldwide saying it received an unsolicited takeover proposal from a group of companies. It's up more than 7%. U.S. Stock Index futures lower with S&P E-Mini futures down 3.5 points. Dow E-Mini futures down 13. NASDAQ E-Mini futures down 4. DAX in Germany is up 1.6%. 10-year Treasury up seconds, the yield 1.97%. NYMEX crude oil down 2.1% or 81 cents to 37.69 a barrel. COMEX Gold down to or two dollars forty cents 1257 announced the euro a dollar the yen 113 point seven zero that's a Bloomberg business flash Tom and Mike
1: Karen uh, thanks so much Michael McKee has a host of questions for our guest Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations quickly um, a, a, a guy with a, I think a right-wing persuasion out on Twitter Republican persuasion just asked a brilliant question why do Europeans or anybody else for that matter? Give us the criticism we do when the U.S. taxpayer is providing for international defense. This free ride off of the United States with our military might. Give us an update on where that stands. Is that a correct observation? Well,
4: the the only way to defend it is the United States has paid the lion's share of what, say, what NATO has spent, not as a favor to the Europeans, but as a favor to ourselves. One of the lessons we learned from World War II is the balance of power in Europe and other places beyond the United States is in the U.S. national interest. And in some places, the Europeans just don't have certain capacities. Should they do more? Yes. It's not even more than how much they spend. They should integrate it more. They should specialize because there's no, there's no system in Europe so that this country, say, focuses on air forces as opposed to land forces yeah. as opposed to naval. Yeah. So this, the whole is less than the sum of its parts. But, again, it's not just giveaways uh, from the United States. It's, it's something that we do because it makes you know, we have benefited tremendously from the stability in Europe. Mm-hmm. And we benefit for, out of all this from being the world's reserve currency and in ways people I don't think understand at all. Uh, absolutely. Look, there's, there's a lot of benefits that comes from the United States being what I would describe as first among unequals in uh, the world. And we have to think twice and then three times if we're thinking about moving away from that, uh, from that position. I think the Middle East is a frightening glimpse of what, ha- what could happen, the worst case possible, when the United States essentially says we're going to back away from a set of uh, involvements. So I'm not suggesting that would necessarily be replicated in other parts of the world, but imagine what, what Asia would look like. If the U.S.-Japanese or U.S.-South Korean relationships were not seen as robust, you would suddenly have a region, I believe, of more conflict, more proliferation, and and worse. So the United States needs to stay involved in these parts of the world which are are simply not self-regulating. You've written a piece called The Inbox of the
2: Next Commander-in-Chief. Unfortunately, we don't have two hours to sit and talk with you, so what's at the the top of the inbox? What's the scariest thing out there that whoever takes up? The scariest
1: thing for Richard Haas is three hours with you or me. (laughs) What's the second scariest thing out there? Uh,
4: Just a couple of things uh, out there. One is going to be how do we persuade Iran's neighbors uh, not to develop nuclear options or hedges of their own against the uncertainty of where Iran might be down the road? What do we do about North Korea's nuclear uh, program? North Korea, possibly during the time of the next presidency, will be able to miniaturize nuclear weapons and put them on wep- missiles that can reach the United States. Are we prepared to tolerate that? If so, how do we, uh, how do we, how do we deal with that? And then you've got any number of uh, traditional issues dealing with, with China, uh, with, with, with Russia, uh, you know, I could go on and on, and just look at some other issues we haven't even talked about: how to how to govern cyberspace, how to how to deal with the threat of an international pandemic. Uh, you know, it's a it's a long long list of regional and and global issues out there.
2: You've been at this a long time. Are you more concerned about uh, what's going on in the world than
4: you have been in many years? Uh, I hate to be pessimistic, and my kids call me Debbie Downer. But the short answer is yes. Uh, I'm worried about two things in the combination. I'm I'm worried about a world that's unraveling in a lot of places and where capacity is spreading. More and more places have the means to do things. They're making more and more decisions on their own, deferring to us a lot less. And I worry that we, to some extent, have have opted out in many cases. And we simply don't have the consensus or we don't have the will. So this combination of an America that's that's divided and distracted and a world that's unraveling is a toxic combination.
1: You are carefully bipartisan or I should say nonpartisan at CFR, you have a history with Republican politics. What would you like to hear at a Republican convention? Not just the main speech of whoever it is, but the set of speeches at a GOP convention.
4: The last Republican president who I thought got it right on foreign policy was George Herbert Walker Bush.
1: A few years ago.
4: Yeah, it's 20, it's, it's 2025 20, years ago, and it had a sense of American leadership in the world, but it wasn't uh, unilateralism. It was working with others. We were trying to do things in the world, but we weren't trying to remake the societies of other countries. For the most part, it had a sense of uh, limits. It understood the need for a strong society and economy at home, if you will, to balance guns and butter. I want to see that sort of thing again. If uh... President Bush agreed to come back, or
2: somebody like him were to take office again, though. Could we recreate that in the sense that? Uh, as
4: you say, the world is making its own decisions now. Is it too late for American It's policy? much more difficult. The honest answer is it's much more difficult because capacity in many forms has spread around the world, whether it's military capacity or technology. And I also think there's been a loss of confidence in American reliability. I, I disagree with President Obama. His recent interview in Atlantic Magazine, I think we've paid an enormous price for what he said he would do and then didn't do in, in Syria. It raised fundamental questions about the strength of uh, American commitments. I also think we've paid a price for the dysfunction at home, Mm. all these years of sequester, of threatened government shutdowns, of not being able, say, to pass the TPP or other legislation that we've negotiated. So the rest of the world has come to see the United States, quite correctly, as a less predictable place. Mm. It's very hard to be a great power who is not reliable and predictable.
1: We'll uh, get a message into President Bush to see if he can serve another four years. He will celebrate, Michael, June 12th. His 92nd birthday.
2: And uh, happy birthday to him. Yes. I covered his presidency. And he was uh, uh, one of the nicest people you ever met. Yeah.
1: Richard Haas, thank you so much. With the Council on Foreign Relations. Can't say enough about their campaign 2016. Actual intelligence and discourse on the nation's issues. What a shock that is. Campaign 2016 out at CFR. Michael McKee and Tom Keene, to get your Monday ready on economics, finance, investment. And international relations, this is Bloomberg Surveillance.
2: Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by Land Rover. Adventures yours for the taking. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special lease and financing offers. Land Rover, above and beyond.
0: Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, SiriusXM Channel 119, and around the globe. The Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance.
2: Good morning. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keane. We're two hours away from the opening of trading this week, and it looks like we're going to open lower, but uh, we shall see. A couple of stories breaking in the last hour. Apollo Global Management agreeing to buy grocery chain Fresh Market. They're going to pay 28.50 a share in cash. It's about $1.4 billion. And Starwood Hotels says it got a $76 a share cash non-binding proposal from a consortium of companies. This came in March 10th last week. That would be a uh, 7.9% premium. Now, they had agreed to sell to Marriott. Marriott is giving them a waiver to uh, discuss. This latest offer, it expires at midnight on March 17th. And speaking of hotels over the weekend, Blackstone agreeing to sell strategic hotels and resorts to China's Anbang Insurance Company. That's a $6.5 billion deal. They only bought the company about three months ago. We'll continue to follow those stories as the morning goes on. But in the meantime, we're going to check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national
5: headlines. Thank you very much, Mike. Turkey's Air Force conducted airstrikes on Kurdish rebels in northern Iraq today, hours after a suicide car bombing in Ankara killed 37 people and heightened tensions with the Kurdish rebels. Yesterday's car bombing in Ankara took place just 200 yards from the office of Turkey's prime minister. An Amtrak train with about 128 passengers and 14 crew members derailed in southwest Kansas sending about 20 people to the hospital. Amtrak says the train was traveling from Los Angeles to Chicago early this morning when it derailed about 20 miles west of Dodge City. Republican presidential candidates are readying their closing arguments in Ohio, Illinois, Missouri, North Carolina, and Florida with a trove of delegates at stake. The number of delegates up for grabs tomorrow account for more than a quarter of the 1,237 necessary for nomination. A top performance by frontrunner Donald Trump can make him nearly unbeatable for the nomination. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike.
2: Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. The
7: Ray Katina Auto Group, Bloomberg NBC Sports Update with Rob Bushkin. Hey, good morning, Mike. For basketball fans, it's the best time of the year. It's March Madness. Selection Sunday was kind to a half dozen New York and New Jersey teams. Seton Hall, the upstart winner of the Big East Tournament, draws perennial power Gonzaga in a 6-11 versus 11 matchup. Fairleigh Dickinson rounds out the New Jersey list, while Syracuse, Iona, Buffalo, and Stony Brook represent New York. The tournament's officially underway Tuesday, but starts in full on Thursday as the road to Houston goes through Brooklyn, where Barclays Center will host opening round games next week weekend the Knicks they take advantage of a slow start in LA by the Lakers to win that game 90 to 87 retiring Lakers legend Kobe Bryant says he'll miss all that is Madison Square Garden you know,
2: I
1: always love going to the garden man it's just there's just so much history there and I, you know I'm gonna miss that also miss the fact that you know they have some regret not I didn't get a chance to properly say goodbye um to them so um but I'm certainly gonna miss going to the garden and playing there
7: Carmelo had 26 in the win. The Nets lose to the Bucks, And on the ice, the Rangers, they fall to Pittsburgh 5-3. Yankees shut out the Mets. They shut out Miami. And that's your NBC Bloomberg Sports Update. Mike? Thank
2: you, Rob. Got your brackets filled out. Um, gonna be a very interesting tournament this year. A lot of people say no real favorite could go anyway. So, uh, maybe we'll do a uh, surveillance bracket ahead here on Bloomberg Radio.
7: Welcome back to Bloomberg
2: Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee along with Tom Keen. As I mentioned, it looks like a down open in the United States. S&P features off by four points, two tenths of a percent. Dow features are down 16. That's a tenth of a percent. Europe's still higher. The stock 600, three points up, three quarters of a percent. The Bloomberg NJIT STEM Report, brought to you by New Jersey Institute of Technology, partnering with government and industry to apply the university's world-class research assets to innovate and spur economic growth. Learn more at njit.edu. Here's Bob Moon.
3: Michael, thank you. And at 7.35 on Wall Street, here's what's making news in science, technology, engineering, and math. Airbnb will soon give people renting out rooms and homes to its website. A better way to find out how the strangers showing up at their properties are behaving. A new tool will let neighbors weigh in. With feedback on Airbnb properties nearby, according to the head of Airbnb in Japan, the feature will be rolled out globally in a few weeks. Venture capital firms bet tens of millions of dollars that startups offering affordable valet parking to harried urbanites would flourish in the on-demand economy pioneered by Uber. Parking valets working for companies with names like Lux, Zerx, and Valet Anywhere became a common sight in the congested precincts of San Francisco, Chicago, and New York, among other places. Turns out it's hard to make money parking cars. Two startups quickly imploded, three more shifting away from the on-demand model and selling their services to companies instead of consumers. And Sean Parker, who co-founded the music-sharing service Napster and returned to online music a decade later as a backer of Spotify, is defending music streaming in an interview with Bloomberg Television's Emily Chang. He suggested artists such as Taylor Swift may not have a problem with streaming as much as their managers, who he says have a job of squeezing every last dime out. I've talked to a lot
7: of other artists whose managers are on a vendetta who love streaming and they just want their music to be heard as widely as possible.
3: Sean Parker speaking to Bloomberg Television. And that is this morning's Bloomberg NJIT STEM report. Michael.
2: Thank you very much. Um, As long as we're talking about stuff like that, we could note that you can go to iTunes and you can download Bloomberg Surveillance Podcasts. Um, And that is the best way to share files. Well, The International Energy Agency said last week that it looked like we have a floor in for oil prices, and oil prices were elevated for the past week, at least Till today, now, uh, West Texas is off by two point four percent. brant is down below forty dollars again, down one point nine percent on the day. Paul Sankey is a senior oil and gas analyst at Wolf Research. He joins us now, and uh, Paul everything seemed to be moving in the direction the IEA was suggesting till Iran came out and said we 're going to ramp up our oil sales over the weekend. Um, is this a a one-day story as people digest what they say, or are they actually going to be able to produce more, and we go back to where we were, of uh, supply growing faster than demand?
8: Well, we don't really know, to be honest with you. Good morning, by the way. Um, It's tough with Iran. The the level of uh, true understanding of what's going on there is very limited. I've been looking at it in some detail, and actually the national oil company's website was last updated in 1996, uh, so uh, even speaking to major companies such as Exxon and asking them about what they thought Iran could export, there's a very high degree of uncertainty. And the main problem here is uh, is that we're in a U.S. turnaround season and we can't take any more barrels. So this idea that Iran is sending more oil into the market... Uh, is enough just to push us down again today, as you said. Well,
2: let's push us down to terms um, of Brent, uh, 39.63. Is it going to push us further than that? Are we going to go back and threaten the lows that we had seen, or is this about where we go while people try to figure out what happens
8: next? I think we always thought that the first half of this year would be the low. Uh, the problem is we're in March, so, you know, I think there's still risk in April, um, possibly less in May as driving season starts. Uh, we're not convinced that we've for sure seen the bottom, but you know we've rallied pretty well off the extreme lows that we saw earlier this year. And uh, I think it's fair to say, if you're a long-term investor, we've seen we're, we're putting in the lows for oil. I think that's reasonable.
2: Well, the uh, concomitant question to that is, what could be the highs? Where could we go from here?
8: Well, I view oil as a boom and bust business. So my view is that over time we'll, we'll actually run out of available supply growth, uh, given the scale of uh, spending cuts that we've seen here and given the issues that the, the major government companies are facing. And my view of where demand destruction is, is actually back towards $80 or $100 a barrel. I've, I've, I've come off the 100 a bit <laughs> recently because things have been so weak. But demand destruction for me is back up towards, you know, over 350 a, a gallon at the U.S. pump. And I think you'll get there over the next three years.
2: Really? Uh, that would be a, a shock to drivers. Does it happen uh, a couple of cents at a time, or do we see a spike somewhere?
8: No, I think it happens a couple of cents at a time. There's a major overhang in terms of inventory. Um, you know, I think we're going to grind our way back there, and it, it, uh, it really feels like there's so much available oil, as I say, particularly in inventory right now, that we're not going to suddenly spike back up. It could jump with an OPEC cut, which would obviously be a bit of a surprise to the market, um, especially given the Iranian news and the fact that the Iranians really don't get on at all with the Saudis. Uh, So I think the risk of a a jump is more related to OPEC cuts than than the cycle working and and demand uh, beginning to exceed supply in the way that it will this year.
2: Well, that's uh, just very quickly in 30 seconds, if you could. um, When you say demand destruction, how much do we go down?
8: Well, the issue is that we're so aggressively cutting capital expenditure globally for oil supply, and then we have, a, unlike any other commodity, a commodity in oil that declines in supply naturally. The key question for us, whether well, how bearish we want it to be with oil, was has demand reacted to low prices has demand got stronger because the price is low. The day that doesn't happen, that's the end of the oil age. But, in fact, in this cycle, last year and this year again, especially looking at U.S. gasoline demand, there has been an aggressive demand response. And knowing that the supply side naturally corrects itself and will aggressively uh, increase its correction as, as spending cuts roll through, we're convinced that you're going back to high prices over the next three years.
2: Well, let's come back with Paul Sankey, Senior Oil and Gas Analyst at uh, Wolf Research. Looking at uh, prices right now, uh, gasoline retails for 194 a gallon. That's up from 171 about a week or so ago, but still far from the $3 he's talking about. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by Flushing Bank. Open a complete business checking account with $15,000 or more and get a free 16-gig Wi-Fi tablet. Visit FlushingBank.com for details. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.
0: Mobile Business News, 24 hours a day, at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash.
6: And I'm Karen Moscow. This update brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock when you can invest in the entire sector? Visit Sector, SPDRS.com, or call 1-866-SECTOR-ETF. Starwood Hotels and Resorts Worldwide which is being bought by Marriott International received a separate unsolicited takeover proposal from a group of companies led by Anbank Insurance Group. Starwood is up more than 8% this morning. And Apollo Global Management agreeing to buy Grocer the Fresh Market for about $1.4 billion in cash. Fresh Market up more than 23%. U.S. Stock Index Futures lower. S&P E-Mini Futures down 5 points. Dow E-Mini Futures down 26. NASDAQ E-Mini Futures down 10. DAX in Germany is up one point four percent. Tenure Treasury up two thirty seconds to yield one point nine seven percent. NyMex crude oil down two point six percent or ninety eight cents to thirty seven fifty two a barrel. Comex gold is down three tenths percent or three dollars thirty cents to twelve fifty six ten an ounce. The Euro a dollar eleven oh nine. The yen one thirteen point six four. And that's a Bloomberg business flash. Tom and Mike.
2: Karen Mosko, thank you very much. We're talking with Paul Sankey, Senior Oil and Gas Analyst at Wolf Research. And we talked uh, before the break about the fact there may be a bottom in now for oil prices. And that is leading you to put out some notes that suggest maybe it is time to start looking at oil uh, stocks again. And uh, your advice seems to be go big or go home at this point.
8: Well, we've got the idea that the very biggest oils may be into a positive cycle, and I'm talking about Exxon and Chevron particularly here, but also to an extent, Phillips. philips The idea is that over the past five years, these companies really struggled with growth, struggled with very high costs and high spending, and also, um, you know, essentially struggled with access to to, to new resources. Governments were, were making so much money at $100. And what we've got going forward from here now is a a very aggressive capital expenditure program from the past five years is is being significantly reduced. But the growth that they got from that lagging capital expenditure is still coming through. So what we've got, unlike the previous five years, is rising growth and falling capex and by extension, rising returns. And that's the essence of the the, the bull argument that we put together for Chevron Texaco when we upgraded it last week.
1: Paul, are they forever changed? What was the lesson learned? I give them great credit, and this goes back to your work at Deutsche Bank with Adam Siminski, where the big oil companies never got carried away with $100 a barrel. But what is their tone? Is there a new humility among big oil
8: well, yes, actually, that word did come up at the Chevron analyst meeting, and I was impressed that the CEO was using it. Obviously, in a, in a I'm not to judge the man, I'm judging the corporation here. And um, you know, having said that, I, I do believe that at the top of the cycle, they did get carried away. Chevron's capex reached forty billion dollars a year, um, and they guided that they would remain that elevated, and that was really just far too much money. The companies also, having spent all that money, did, as I said, fail to grow. Chevron's major projects are only just now starting up exactly at the wrong moment from an oil price point of view. But as I said, if we look at it on a longer term basis, I do think they're now into a much more positive cycle, and I do think that that humility that you referenced will keep them from uh, greatly ramping up spending again, even as the oil price begins to rise again here, as we talked about over the next three years.
2: They are, uh, you said, uh, just coming online with major projects. How much is that going to add to the amount of oil out there? And can they back off at
8: all? Well, in certain cases, yes, there's going to be tens of thousands of additional barrels of oil just coming out of uh, the partition neutral zone between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia over the course of summer. Uh, a lot of what they're producing in terms of growth at Chevron is uh, liquid natural gas, and that market is also in glut. So the additional volume is definitely not needed, and, and what we really need to see here is a correction in Uh, overall global supply, which essentially we're getting from the lowered rig count in the U.S. That's the first mechanism. But we're also looking at declines beginning in Russia, uh, in places like Kazakhstan, Brazil, will grow a lot less and so on. So globally we are seeing a correction. Chevron and Exxon, I think, can work into that uh, market share opportunity.
1: Where's the terminal value? I mean, I know you and Mike talked earlier about oil bottom or that. Is, Is there a number out there or are you just throwing the towel on that? (laughs)
8: <laughs> well, that's a great question. We think, as, as I've said many times, that this is the end of the oil age in the 21st century. So the 20th century was the age of oil, the 21st will be the age of electricity, but this is obviously not something that you, you switch, click, click a switch on. It'll take 30 years for that to come through. Uh, if if we are in the end of the oil age, and as I said, if, if demand doesn't respond to low prices, we're in the end of the oil age by definition, the cycle has ended then exactly as you highlight, there's no terminal value, and we're very worried about that. The good news for all valuation is over the next 10 years, we have seen a demand response to low prices. We have seen very uh, significant increases in sales of gasoline-driven cars and trucks in the U.S., and so I believe we have one final cycle. If you want to look 20, 30 years, I I think possibly the terminal value could be zero.
2: When you talk about um, the majors, the the, the big ones, uh, even with the problems – they have. In the most recent quarter, Exxon, for example, has $1.8 billion in, in free cash flow. What, if they're not going to be ramping up um, their capital spending, what are they going to do with the cash?
8: Well, over time, again, we think the free cash flow, certainly in the case of Chevron and Exxon, their balance sheets are still in good shape. So we, we do think it will probably go back to buyback. And certainly, we've we've said that we will upgrade Chevron on the basis that we don't see any threat to its dividend now. Um, we're still expecting, we think, Russia, Russia, the loss of Russia is going to force Exxon into making a big deal. The problem is they're the only big buyer, and the market knows they're coming. So everything that's worth buying from an a, a operational point of view for, for Exxon is very aggressively priced. And they haven't been able to see something that they find to be attractive in value, but we think they've really got to do something um, so unlike Chevron, where we don't see the need for them to deal, and we do think you could get back into a situation of rising dividend and buyback, mm-hmm. for Exxon, we see a deal as necessary. What, and what? we're underweight that one. We're underperform on that stock, by the way.
2: Give us some for instances on what Exxon might be looking at.
8: Permian. There's no question that the number one oil field in the world today, the number one oil play in the world today is the Permian in Texas, right in their backyard, multiple stacks and zones there, so an almost unlimited upside. Um, you know, the new technology that we've seen here has made the break evens come all the way down into the 20, uh, $20 a barrel type range. Right. And as I said, it's in their own backyard. They're sick and tired of dealing with what they've had to deal with in places like Russia.
1: <laughs> so you might as well deal with uh, wherever the Permian is. will have to get the map out and look at that. Help me with peak oil then. You mentioned new technology, which completely redefined the certitude of peak oil. What's the new peak? I mean, from a, from a hydrocarbon engineering standpoint, What's the new peak? Peak technology?
8: Peak demand, that's the threat. I mean, you can see in the markets pricing Tesla that ultimately the way we drive, which is 90% of Americans, I think, drive less than 40 miles a day. We're sitting in congested urban space driving. We should be all driving electric cars. There's no doubt about that. If you want to drive to California from New York, you want a gasoline car, but almost no one's doing that. So over the next 15 to 20 years, I think the penetration of electric cars is going to be enormous. And that's 40, 50 percent of global oil demand is basically transport
1: demand. Then how so, can you be institutionally long oil? It's like you can be in it and, you know, but then five or 10 years. from so now you've got to get out.
8: I think, a, well, I think on a 30 year view, you are. not And I think what you'll see is that if you look at the multiple of Tesla versus the multiple of Exxon, you've got your answer right there. Mm-hmm. I think over the next five to 10 years, there is a there is another uh, peak cycle coming. And that's what you're playing for right here, in my view.
2: Interesting. In the meantime, um, Bloomberg government has a note out this morning. uh, Congress is uh, going to be uh, looking and the administration will be looking at um, the – well, it's the administration releasing the next version of its um, offshore leasing proposals. Virginia's coastline, I guess, is the issue. Uh, do people care anymore? Do people bid for these things? Is this something you bid for, put it in your pocket, but don't explore? Uh, it would have been a big deal under the drill baby drill days, but nobody wants us to drill anymore.
8: Yeah, right. I mean, this is one of the reasons we firmly believe that oil is locked into a boom and bust cycle. Essentially, there's a natural cycle. Higher prices give, give less demand and more supply. But there's, an, there's a plus G here, which is not growth. It's the impact of government. It's a big G. And the government always shows up at exactly the wrong moment. Um, what we, should, <laughs> you know, may I quote really you on that? Absolutely. Uh, uh, opening up offshore leases to expiration today, as as you say, is is ludicrously irrelevant. What they should be mm-hmm. doing is putting in a gasoline tax. But of course, no one can do that. But obviously, with gasoline prices as low as they are now, is the opportunity mm-hmm. to stop the price going any lower. Let's say, you know, oh. put a floor in at two or two fifty a gallon and, um, you know, really make this move that would be very right. beneficial to, towards electric cars.
1: Very valuable. Paul Sankey, thank you so much. What a pleasure, Research. guys. What a, what a, what a briefing. Uh, that was, Mike, the Permian Basin, I'll try to figure out a map that I can get out on social, is central Texas to the left. So it's over in west Texas, the Midland Basin, and things we know, almost down to the Rio Grande, and then a little bit of the lower corner of New Mexico, yeah. Did, I, did I describe that okay? Seems to be. Yeah.
2: The Permian I think, Basin. I think Paul had a great idea. Nobody's driving New York to California. We can take surveillance on the road. On, uh, we can listen yeah. to it on Channel 119, Sirius XM, um, all the way from New York to do California. Our, do our
1: Permian, Permian Basin.
2: Yeah, from uh, 1130 in New York City to 960 in the San Francisco Bay Area.
1: Coast to coast, we call that, Bloomberg 1200 Boston, Bloomberg 991 FM in Washington. Good morning, and yes, out to the West Coast, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco and the Bay Area. We're thrilled you're listening nationwide across Canada. Uh, on Sirius XM Channel 119 as well. Uh, Paul Sankey, uh, look for that on the Bloomberg Terminal. That interview deserves to be re-listened to, is what I would suggest. You can do that. iTunes has all of our radio interviews. That's all you need to know. iTunes, Bloomberg Surveillance, our podcast. They're free. Good morning.